Uh, good morning. Uh, as Carol just said, this is the last sermon you'll be hearing before the summer break. Oh, and I took the arm now. I'm using all hackers to do a nice break. Usual hackers. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, and today I want to press on to the end of John chapter 8. The next verse you will hear from this virtual pulpit is that of Jim Cronin. Hooray! Hey. He joins us uh, this summer as associate pastor and eventually will be taking over uh, the senior pastor of the church. And I hope that you will be able to make it for his and Rachel's commissioning service, which will be that day, the 6th of August. Uh, there's not going to be any great pomp and circumstance, but it will mark a great milestone in the life of this church. And there's an old saying in the vineyard that with the appointing comes the anointing. So I expect this also to be a powerful time in God's presence. When God pours out his anointing, the splashes go everywhere. So it's always a good thing to be at this time. As to what the future holds for the human vineyard, I'm sure you will agree that maintaining the status quo is too low an aim. We fully expect and we fervently hope that under Jim and Rachel, when they finally do take over the tiller, kingdom vineyard is going to thrive and grow in ways we've never seen before. This will bring challenges, as changes are always do. But the <coughs> fundamental vision and values of the church will remain unchanged, unless I've had one of these years. What we're looking forward to is just a bigger and better vision of precisely the same church that you guys have signed up for, basically, members here. As we look forward to the handover period, and indeed as we look around at a fast-changing world, I believe the passage I'm about to read contains three essential questions as to how we're going to respond to all this. I consider various possible messages for today of this turning point in our life together. But in the end, it became pretty clear that John's gospel <coughs> hasn't finished with us just yet. My prayer is that as we read and unpack this passage a little bit, God's Spirit will speak to our hearts and prepare us just a little better for the bend in the road that lies ahead of us. Let's read together that second part of John chapter 8. I'm going to start halfway through verse 24. <clears throat> Just a government health warning before I do. As with our text three weeks ago, there are a couple of powerful I am statements here, which stick out like a sore thumb in the Greek. Left alone, that's if you don't add in the spurious word he, as most English translations do, these readers deeply mysterious utterances, troublingly reminiscent of the name that God gives himself to when he's speaking to Moses at the burning bush, I am has sent you. And as I, as I read, I'm going to leave that key out on purpose and let the reader speak for itself. Because once we do that, it reveals the common sandwich form of reading <coughs> we so often find in the Bible, where a strong statement is made at the beginning and end of the passage, and the filling in between enhances and emphasizes the point. Once again, government help you from reading. I am no Greek scholar, this is just my own view, so please see what you think. So to John, halfway through verse 24, uh, chapter 8, halfway through 24, and it's Jesus speaking. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus says, from just what I've been saying to you, from the beginning, 
I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him, what I've heard from him. They didn't understand that he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, but I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in Jesus, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're offspring of Adam, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave doesn't remain in the house forever, the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Adam, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in me. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you've heard. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me. The man who sold you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father did. They said to him, We weren't born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to him, If God be your father, you will love me. For I came from God. And I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you can't bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and has nothing to do with the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, and he is a liar, and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear it is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Aren't you right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a deed? Jesus answered, I don't have a deed, but I honor the Father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a deed. Abraham died, as did the prophets. If you say, If anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. You go to my father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. You have not known him. I know him. Ah, to say that I don't know him, I'd be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You're not yet fifty years old. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw to him. 
Jesus hid himself and went out of the Now, my reading of this passage is correct. It begins with, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And ends with, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The power, the offence, the outrage of that repeated statement, once it finally sinks in, makes the people want to stone him. Moments before, just in verse 30, they believed in him. Now they turn on him because he's taken them way out of their comfort zone. And he does that sometimes. The leader that they were just about to embrace as rabbi, if not king, is now to be subjected to that arm's length ceremonial trip. No touching, just throw it. Arm's length ceremonial trip, reserved for adulterers, wizards, idolaters, and the Also, Sabbath period, but that's a whole other sin. To my mind, these I am statements in this passage are without doubt the main part. In verse 24, it is Jesus alone, the one and only I am, who can save us from our sins. In verse 28, it is surely a limp thought that it is through the lifting up of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead that we come to realise that he really is, I am, God in human form. And in verse 50, at the end, Jesus finally makes it absolutely clear why he used that offensive, ungrammatical I am in both of the above statements. Before Abraham was I am, not only mixes up the past and present tenses, in a way that obviously presents Jesus as an eternal being. He's also giving himself privacy even over Abraham, the very forefathers of the Jewish faith. And at this point, what may have been just a million discomfort about his language suddenly gets them out of place. He's using the holy name of God to describe himself. The I am statements are not the only, not only the main point of this passage, actually they're the main point of any philosophical or theological discourse you could have. Jesus is, as John told us right at the start of this gospel, the Word who was in the beginning with God and who was God. Nothing and no one is more important to earth than heaven. But in between these I am statements, as the filling of our sandwich, comes the conversation. It seems to me to be infused from top to bottom with three great questions about how we respond to our circumstances, to the various ends in the road that we experience, and most importantly, how we respond to the great I am himself. And they are, what do we speak, what do we seek, and what do we keep? As we walk through this passage together for the next few minutes, I'll try and address each one of these questions in turn, but you will notice that all three keep popping up throughout. So the divisions I'm making here are, to that extent, artificial, but I think we agree that the three questions are real enough and the challenges they present. First, what do we speak? Verses 24 and 30. Can we have some of that? Just a little bit more. Thank you. Now, verse 26 leapt off the page at me as I read these words the other day. <clears throat> but his guiding principle is so completely at odds with the pervasive attitude of our age. Jesus has much to say about us and much to judge. Yet he's only interested in speaking up the words that God has given him to say at this precise time and this precise people. 
the world rushes to judgment and barely trips over itself in its hurry to speak. I might be going soft in my old age, I probably am, but this last election has struck me as the nastiest I can remember and the most devoid of And now that it's over, the name calling that seems to be louder and more destructive than ever. Yet if I'm honest, I'm as tempted as the next man to rush both to judgment and to speak. The values of the surrounding culture have a way of seeping into our lives. Now Jesus was never prone to that, and we're supposed to be like him. We too have much to say, and possibly we have much to judge about politics, morals, religion, public safety, and vitally bring it down to an individual level about other human beings too. Each one of whom is made in the image of our God. But what we need to do, using our crime score phrase, is wind our necks in and shut us. Listen. Because it doesn't matter what we think, however certain, however angry we might be. All that matters, in this and every situation, is what God is saying. And He's speaking all the time, if we can only remain silent long enough to hear. Of course, when we do hardly chuck a word from God into the maelstrom of empty noise and soundness that surrounds us, we're about as likely to be understood as Jesus was in verse 27. That lack of understanding eventually sent Jesus to the cross, and it made it us into hot water as well. It's going to take a resurrection event, verse 28, for people to understand that Jesus is I am, that he's speaking of exactly what the Father has given him to say. And likewise, it may take a miracle or two for people to be able to hear God speaking to us as servants. Ask the Old Testament prophets, ask the twelve apostles, most of them died for speaking God's word. As Jesus says in verse 29, if we only do and say what the Father tells us to, we can make it a very lonely, even a dangerous place. But the Father himself will be with us. And that should be rewarded. Actually, I think it's going to happen. But it's all the reward we're going to get this side of prayer from those of us. But what we say and the way we say it is vitally important. The words of Jesus, verse 31 and 32, if that constantly applied to a human life, bring freedom from sin and all its consequences. We might not be brilliant at speaking out the Father's heart. Every single time you do make it right, there's a power effect in the kingdom of God. As God Himself says in Isaiah 55 11, my word which proceeds out of my mouth, that's my now word, the word that I speak in mouth to these people, will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what what pleases me and will prosper in whatever I say to. Just before you move on, note also the chilling contrast in verse 38 between Jesus who speaks out what he's seen with his heavenly father and these people who do what they've learned from their father, the devil. <coughs> a murderer from the beginning, the father of lies. Well, I don't know about you, when I become annoyed or disconcerted by world events, the actions of others, changes in my own circumstances, I can tend to make what we might call unguarded comments. By unguarded, what I mean is, is words whose source I never checked, 
because I never checked my time. If I'm not careful, I'm prone to make statements and criticisms that might have their roots more in the father of lies than they do in the God of all truth. How do I know which it is unless I check? Particularly at the times of uncertainty and upheaval, it matters what we speak. Second, what do we seek? Verses 31 to 47. In verse 37 and 40, Jesus accuses the people, starting of seeking to kill him. This is a desire that most of them at this point is just buried so deep. They've got no idea that it's there. You know, by the time the chapter closes, it's come right up to the surface. If we're honest, most of us seldom stop to consider what we are seeking, what we really want. As far as I'm aware, the Spice Girls alone were absolutely certain that one. What they really, really wanted, it turned out, sounds to me like a bigger cigar. <laughs> Takes all sorts. Occasionally, the wonderfully organised or terrifyingly driven individuals who not only know what they're seeking, but actually have a plan to achieve it. Most of us, it seems to me, don't do that. Most of us drift through life, hoping we'll know it when we see it. But the two great pastoral questions in the Bible, questions God asks us, not because he requires the information, but because he wants us to examine our own lives and know ourselves better, remain the same, it seems to me. Where are you? The question asked of Adam and Eve in the garden. And what do you want? As Jesus so often asked needy and sick people to be met for one day. If we can answer those two questions well, then we are streets ahead of most of the people we will ever meet in an average lifetime. We find ourselves at the end of our tether, in unexpected sin, disoriented, depressed, or distraught. And we can do a lot worse than start by asking ourselves these questions. Or maybe having a trusted friend ask them of us, where are we and what do we want? The guys in this crowd display, I think, complete lack of self-knowledge in verse 33, and they rely on their Jewish credentials purely in terms of knowledge. As Jesus points out, the true heirs of Abraham are not those who share his physical DNA, but those who do what he did. These folk are displaying distinct family likeness to their father, the devil. And I suspect at least part of the reason for that is they don't know what they're seeking. For a brief, blessed moment in verse 13, we thought they were experiencing that part of it when the moment with Jesus, and they started to believe in him. And now he challenges one of their sacred cows, that all-important Jewish brother. It soon becomes clear that he wasn't very looking for at all. They bridle at the suggestion that they might not be completely free, just ignoring the fact that all of Israel is unprojected to the imperial Rome at the time. Jesus explains that he's speaking of slavery to sin. In verse 37, we can see all too plainly that his words are water of the dark back or seed sown in the ground. These are not penitent people. If they were seeking to live big lives before God, if they'd been struggling against sin like all of us do every day, they would have responded immediately to this promise of being set free from it. But it's not an idea they entertain even for a moment. 
We have children of Abraham. Seven million. <laughs> As the argument continues, Jesus points out the tragedy of trusting in our inheritance and their lives completely denied by heritage. This verse 40 is the kind of truth that could set them free if they wanted, if they really knew what they were seeking. Instead, verse 41, I know I can determine to resist God, to be our own boss, and so they are their wrinkles. What are we seeking? Next, we claim God as their father, but that's even worse. True children, and indeed seekers of God, easily recognize the family likeness of the father. They easily detect the nature of I am when they see it in the son. Do you know that according to many reports from all over the world, this is precisely what is happening in Muslim areas of the world in these days? So let's remember to pray for Kirsty Dee as she works with Muslim refugees in Vienna. But in her, many of them encounter the Jesus they never knew they were looking for. And one final point on seeking before we move on. In the next section, verse 15, Jesus will also say, I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I mean, he's the one who's actually going to the glory. Jesus sets us an example, not only in terms of what we seek, but in what we seek as well. He's not seeking his own glory. He's happy to leave that to God, who actively seeks it for him. But just wonder how much of the negative consequences of mankind's glory seeking could be avoided if we all understood how desperately God would love to glorify He didn't make mankind in his own image to be a slave, seared in heart, strutting himself in waters, and separated from God. That's the devil's agenda for us. Our creator seeks our glory, as befits his image in us. And he was unable to impart much of it to us. Then, as he once famously said to John Wayne, John, the problem's not at mine. <laughs> Especially at times of uncertainty in our people, it matters what we seek. Lastly, what do we keep? Verses 48 to 59. The people call Jesus a mad heretic. And that just shows how wide the mark they are. He's honouring God for doing his work, seeking his glory, speaking his words. And these people call him a mad heretic. Verse 51. Is actually a reprieve to think about it too. Both the verse we started with, you're going to die in the sins unless you believe that I am. And also verses 31 and 32. If you abide in my words, you will truth the truth is This time he puts both thoughts together. If you keep my words, you will never taste death. The word keep is often narrowly interpreted to mean simply obey, obey. But I think there are other possible meanings. Certainly there are clothes in the Greek word tineco, just as there are different English meanings to the word keep. The most common meaning of that Greek word is to keep in the sense of to guard. The second is to keep in the context of preserving something unchanged. Only the third most important meaning is to obey. I think we might want to do all three 
as we attempt to keep Jesus' words. We should guard them in our hearts so they don't slip away from us. We should abide in them. We should preserve them unchanged. Make sure we don't water them down, twist them to our own ends. And thirdly, we should just simply fail. So I think we're more likely to achieve that third point if we start with the first and second. Because these are not dead letter laws to be obeyed spiritually. Not at all. They're transformative words of life. They're intended to produce fruit. You might perceive in the parable of the soul. The power to obey them springs less from any act of my will than it does from my sympathy living in them and letting them live in me. Only when you do that, are you actually living by them in every sense. As a repeated theme in many of the Psalms, that the author meditates on God's word day and night. So, in this context of keeping, can I ask, what do we meditate on day and night? People we love, people we fancy, people we hate, people we fear, our various worries and concerns, our pain, how wise or wonderful are they? What do we keep in that sense? Because it seems to me that what we keep flows inevitably through into what we seek and speak as well. Notice in verse 55, Jesus says, He knows the Father and keeps his word. That is our example, knowing Jesus and keeping his word. It's a thought that chimes in with many of the great principles that have been revealed in this story so far. In this chapter, following the light of the world so you don't have to walk in darkness. In chapter 7, drinking from Jesus, saying, Where is the living water that fell out of our lips? In chapter 6, eating the living bread that came out of heaven, so we may live forever. In chapter 5, hearing his words and believing God who sent him, so we can pass from death into life. In chapter 4, drinking the water he gives, so we may know thirst and become to us a river of living water, springing to eternal life. In chapter 3, believing in him, so we may have the seven life. And in chapter 1, receiving him, so we have the right to become children of God. And in every case, if you notice, there is a transformative interaction with Jesus. But then there's a different life to be lived afterwards. We are becoming children of God. We continuously believe in Jesus to gain eternal life. The river is springing up to eternal life. We pass from death into life and we eat the bread of life, so we have to live that life. We drink from Jesus so that the life-giving water can flow out of our lives and bless others. And we follow the life of the world in a journey that we still have to walk in the life. And none of these great how-to statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John is about a one-off encounter in the most of time this time. It's about what we keep. It's about what we keep on doing. Who we keep believing. How we keep on doing. If you want to see this world transformed and reconciled to God according to his eternal master plan, we have to keep the words of Jesus in all three senses. We have to stay immersed in them, preserve that for me, and do our best to obey them. This doesn't mean applying ourselves seriously to the matters of prayer and advice, both on our own and in groups. Not every word that Jesus says to us will be found in the Bible. Some, he will speak to us as we still our thoughts in his presence. Some, he will speak to other people. And once we become sensitized to his voice, 
the particular ways that we like to talk to others. Someone's going to speak to us through songs on the radio, signs on the back of trucks, things in nature, and countless other things we do. People wear t shirts with logos on Things like that can speak. But the Lord speaks to us in many various ways. But especially at times of upheaval and uncertainty, it's really important what we keep. And what we keep must bring what we seek and what we speak. And what we speak can be words in eternal life, helping people, as is the lower of this church, to make connections with God. Why would we settle for anything else? Why would we settle for God? <coughs> Lord God of grace and truth. God of wisdom and power. We invite the presence of the Spirit among us. We know, Lord Spirit of God, that you are here already. And uh, when we pray for more of you, I guess we just ask you just to be more conscious of, of where you are, more open to what you're doing. So will you change our hearts, change our minds, as we stand before you now? And then sit your people.